we can't talk about body neutral fitness without acknowledging the fact that fitness is used solely by most people as a way of altering their appearance. And while I don't promote intentional weight loss in any way, because I find that messaging very toxic. I also am a, a human woman who still feels the pressure to to look a certain way. And I know that's very real. I have a privileged body and that even when I am practicing intuitive eating and intuitive exercise, I never have problems shopping for clothes. I might be more self-conscious some days than others, but there's always clothes made for me. Mm. There's always space for me. So that in and of it itself is privileged that I can talk about releasing the desire for intentional weight loss and still being societally accepted. For a lot of people, that's not true. And it's something that is hanging over their head all the time of trying to make themselves fit in. The <laughs> fact that you know everything we know about health at every size and that health looks different on all of us. Welcome to This Thing Called Movement, a podcast exploring our relationship to movement and how it impacts every other aspect of our lives. I'm your host, Marie Janicek, movement guide and co-founder of Evolna, an intuitive movement lifestyle company, helping people create a more fulfilling relationship to their body and self. Through my work in the fields of dance and fitness, I've always been deeply connected to movement and fascinated by how it shapes us. Join me as I dive into conversations with esteemed professionals from a variety of fields and backgrounds. Together, we'll gain insight into their personal movement experiences, the transformations that resulted, and how movement has affected their lives at large. I hope this podcast inspires and empowers you to create a more authentic relationship with your body as you experience the tremendous ripple effect movement can have on all other facets of your life. New episodes will be released on Friday mornings every other week. In the meantime, enjoy. Hello, everyone. I'm so excited to welcome on today's guest, Helen Fellin. Helen is the founder of the Helen Fellin Studio, an online platform where she teaches her body-neutral, breath-and-sensation-focused Pilates workouts. She is deeply devoted to delivering vitalizing and restorative physical exercise practices without the body shaming of traditional fitness experiences. In today's episode, we discussed body neutrality, what it means and how it benefits us, the politics inherent within health and wellness, and how sensation-focused movement practices support both our mental and physical health. Helen delivered such a powerful conversation here with so many significant insights. So without further ado, let's tune in. Helen, welcome so much to the podcast. I'm really excited to dig a little deeper into the world of movement, of body image and intuition today. Me too. That's my jam. <laughs> yeah, I know. So why don't you actually begin by telling us a little bit more about yourself, specifically where your movement journey began and how it led you into the work you're doing today? Absolutely. So like so many fitness professionals in New York City, I found fitness by way of dance. Um, and I so I started dancing when I was three, just very lucky that my mom you know, thought I was hyperactive and put me in and dance because she needed me to stop 
tap dancing on the kitchen floor. Um, so <laughs> started with those ballet tap combo classes and I just really fell in love with it. It became, you know, when you start doing something so young, it just becomes so like, what's the word entrenched in your identity. Like I don't have memories before dance and movement was part of my life as far as I know about self, self-expression that is, it, it was like talking, moving was like talking. So I feel very, very grateful in that regard because I know some people, you know, I have clients even who who don't discover any sort of movement practice until their adult lives. And it's a much harder barrier to entry. It's not impossible. And those are some of the most rewarding clients to work with. But I feel lucky that it's been a part of my life the entire time. I did my Pilates certification in college as part of the BFA in dance and performance, dance performance and choreography at Elon in North Carolina. And the director of the dance department, who's now director of the entire performing arts department, Lauren Kearns, um, she was a big yogi, a big Pilates person. She she ran certifications as well. And it was her kind of thinking that she wanted to not only teach us like ways to take care of our bodies while we're trying to become professional dancers, but survival skills so that we didn't all have to waitress, which was great because I was a very bad waitress <laughs> while, <laughs> while gigging. It's a hard, hard job. I was terrible at it. Um, <laughs> so I did my first mat certification in college, just kind of, you know, to do it. I didn't really anticipate it was going to be any sort of calling. It was still very much like, performance track I wanted to dance. Um, and I did end up doing a semester of independent study. And I even TA'd the somatic theory classes when I was a senior. So I had a good basis on top of just feeling obviously very comfortable in the dance world. Uh, and then my first professional job working for a cruise ship, I got injured like the second day of rehearsals. It was so devastating. I It was like my first job that was going to pay me money. And I got hurt literally 10 seconds in. And it was like such, you know, in, the, in hindsight, you know, the universe was telling me to slow down and be kinder to my body and listen. And I just wasn't. And being the stubborn, no pain, no gain, you know, and mindset that I was in dancing my whole life, I danced on three stress fractures for a month. Wow. Which in hindsight is like, crazy. It's absolutely, <laughs> I don't know how I did it. If I wasn't 22, I don't, I wouldn't have made it through, but I danced on it for an entire month. And the day before we were supposed to ship out, you know, for the tour, the, they noticed I was like wincing in tech rehearsals every time I put weight on my left foot. And I, I thought I was doing a really good job of covering it up and smiling through it through cell block tango. And and they were like, no, you, it's going to cost a lot of money to helicopter you off the ship if we don't get this checked out now. So they forced me to go to a doctor. It turns out it was three stress factors. I never got to go. It sucked. But it did It did invite me to re-examine my Pilates practice because I could not do anything, you know, weight-bearing. For a long time, I was in a boot. So I was doing pool, doing bar in my mom's pool in New Jersey because I had to leave New York. I couldn't afford rent on my workers' comp. And I was doing Matt Pilates exercises at home. Eventually, I you know made it through my physical therapy and was able to move back to the city and, and start auditioning again. But I had a very different relationship with, with exercise and with, with just the dance world in, in, in general. I was also managing, managing is not the right word, suffering from an eating disorder at the same time, which is part of the reason 
it took so long for me to acknowledge and to heal from that injury. Um, so also circling back to just wanting a survivor job that would be more fulfilling. And so I did an apparatus certification to do reformer, Cadillac, ladder barrel, all that fun stuff. And it really truly was just supposed to be a way for me to, you know, support myself. And all throughout my certification, I didn't think that I would enjoy it that much. It was kind of like, I'm just doing this. And then I started actually teaching and, you know, coupled with a million things going on at the same time, you know, just entering, you know, later period of my twenties and all that. I, I just started feeling like I would rather miss an audition to take on an extra shift at the studio, or I'd be watching the clock in rehearsals and anxious to get to a client. Like I, my mindset, my, my mindset, my priorities just started to shift, which was very unnerving just as someone, like I said, who my whole identity was dance for my entire life. Um, but it did. And when I started to ease into letting that happen organically, the way that, you know, somewhere deep in my psyche was asking for it. I, I started feeling more confident teaching. I started feeling like I had something to say. I was also in therapy for my eating disorder at the time, which is why so much about body neutrality and body image and all, and all of, you know, the somatic healing work is so deeply part of my teaching practice because it was this, you know, this, there was a limbo period where when I first started teaching, I was definitely like all about the diet culture, like get a six pack in 10 days. That's why you should come to my class. Cause it's the hardest, blah, blah, blah. Um, but, you know, as I dove deeper into it and, you know, as I evolved on my own, it felt really gross to be regurgitating the same stuff that had been so harmful to me. And I think that's also part of the reason why teaching started to feel so important to me because I was able to start to integrate some of my own healing experience into interacting with others. Mm, wow. So much to happen. <laughs> you uh, let me talk, you let me talk and I will keep talking. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's so rich. Um, the first thing I was really queuing into was your point about like the whole no pain, no gain and just push through it mm -hmm. in the dance world. And I will never forget, you know, starting work as a personal trainer at Equinox and getting injured and having somebody tell me, well, yeah, rest, take time off of it. And I was like, what? What? Because <laughs> what? What? never in my life had I heard that response to an injury. Mm -mm. It had always been just like, well, do the best you can, like j just move away so it doesn't hurt, but keep going. You know, you'll be fine. Just find a way to work through it. That, that was what everyone had told me before, whether it was in, you know, like pre-professional competitive dance studios or whether it was even in college dance settings. So it was, it was fascinating to be like, Oh, I can rest, you know, and what, what a game changer even that was. Yeah. And then it's so romantic. Birth. It's so romantic in the dance world of like to yeah. suffer, to suffer yeah. is to be an artist. And I really, you know, bought into that trope, even going, you know, when they finally had to go see the doctor about my foot, it wasn't like, oh, we're concerned about you as a human being. It was, it's going to cost a lot of money if we have to do this later. So that's yeah. what's important. <laughs> dance, I mean, so, so much of the entertainment industry, but I feel like dancers in particular, and that's probably a whole other discussion, are treated like 
instruments instead of human beings. And so it's, it's hard to separate the, the mind and the body and, and to, to not feel like you should be objectifying yourself because you're treated as a commodity. Oh my gosh. Yes. And then like that totally ties into the whole like body image disorder Mm -hmm. and like even eating disorders, because I was living with eating disorders my entire young adult life. And I didn't know, Mm -hmm. know, I didn't know that this whole like, you know, strategic dieting or intentional self-starvation and then like the erratic binging that I didn't realize that that was actually like a mental disorder that was then like, changing my relationship with my body. And it was like this way to control how I looked when I felt that that was so important to my value contribution as it was so essential to even be hired. And it's fascinating because, you know, I think in some ways the dance industry is a very extreme, uh, like amplified lens of what does happen in fitness at large, because a lot of these tropes are talking about while I was allowed to rest in fitness when I got injured at the same time, there is also the pervasive, like no pain, no gain, right? You have to like push through things. You have to really struggle to earn, you know, the, the results that you want. Like you're not going to get the body you want unless you push yourself past where you feel like you want to go like all the time. And then even, even psychologically, like people stare at their bodies to get the feedback externally through the mirror or like through their clothes, rather than bringing any awareness internally to what's happening within them. Yeah. And fitness, you know, movement outside the dance context. And, you know, I'm now I'm ready to revisit dance studios, but they were there. It took a long time for me to feel safe in that space again. And Pilates was a way for me of affirming my strength and like autonomy over my body without feeling the pressure of I'm, I'm not worthy or I'm being rejected if I don't get a role or if I'm not hired for something. It was a way of even just going to take a dance class, you know, for anyone who has been in the dance world can just be a very intense experience. And it's hard to let go and enjoy what you love about dancing, which is the dancing, because there's so there's so much politics and other stuff going on. Um, so movement, on one hand, like I said, was a way of the only way through the disordered eating for me, but so much of the wellness industry has adopted this mindset of like beauty is wellness. And I love I love me a face mask and a bubble bath and all that stuff. Truly, like I'm not, I'm not, I don't shame anyone for, you know, wanting to look a certain way. And in that respect, if you want to lose weight too, like that's, that's fine. We're all in charge of our own bodies. But the fact that so much of what we talk about in terms of health, we're really talking about the beauty standard and a very limited beauty standard at that. It it makes any sort of marginalized body. And I am, I am a very privileged you know, white cisgendered woman in wellness, like it was, it's made for me as it stands right now. And mm-hmm. it just leaves no room for any, if I'm feeling bad, it leaves no room for anyone else in any sort of marginalized identity to have a seat at the table. And I think that's a problem. You know, like you mentioned, there's so much focus on beauty. And the real problem is that it's beauty in this very small, tiny little context. And so if you're if you're left out of that in by any degree, 
you immediately start harping on yourself and trying to figure out what what's wrong with me? How can I fix what's wrong with me? How can I shape shift myself um, and, and push myself into this? And if you think about that, just like the very baseline, you know, day to day energetic survival standpoint, it's incredibly poisonous for your health and well-being. We're not just talking mentally, but that also cascades down into how your body is able to function. Because when you're moving at that baseline of stress, if I'm not enough, I'm not enough, I'm wrong, I'm bad, I'm ugly, I'm fat, you know, all those things, which like you, to your point, as like a white cisgendered woman who like by all intensive purposes fits in that, I do as well. I hit those points of feeling like I don't fit in. And I trap myself into this negative self-talk that then also changes my ability to access my vitality. So there's something really broken with the system here. With When people who fit into that category don't feel like they fit into that category. And I can't even imagine what it's like when you're sort of cast out of that category based off of like what media and society is saying. Yeah. And in that context, wellness becomes really harmful, actually, and dangerous to anyone in any sort of marginalized identity. And so I, I have this conversation kind of often where like wellness is politics. It's not, it's, you're not able to actually separate the wellness industry from what's going on in 2020. I don't know when this is airing, but what's going on right now, because we can't in good conscience talk about being facilitators of people feeling their best when we're ignoring entire populations of people, or if we only care about a very specific person feeling their best, which is like, we could then talk about like how body positivity has been co-opted by, by skinny white girls too. And it's a, you know, there's a lot there. There's a lot there, but the whole reason that I, I talk so much about body image and yeah, I know you want to talk about like why I make everything so yeah, body, body neutrality and diving into the sensations of movement because it mm-hmm. it then emphasizes how you feel versus how you look. And like I said, mm-hmm. there's there's still space for someone who, you know, maybe does have some sort of appearance goal. They that is their right to have that. Uh so, but it when you're refocusing what the what the priority is, you're pri- prioritizing how you feel, including your mental health that becomes less harmful, in my opinion. Well, I love that the concept of restructuring where the aesthetics lie in relationship to everything else, right? And not just having the aesthetics be the one and only, but bringing in all the other parts of your humanity into the picture. And then like you said, prioritizing it. So while while that aesthetic change may be the goal, let's restructure it from the foundation, from the root system first, so that that actually has the potential to be achieved. Because if we don't bring everything into the picture, then we are inadvertently missing stuff or leaving stuff out and then accidentally disadvantaging ourselves in that transformation process. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's such a a difficult area to navigate when you do talk about, I mean, it's elephant in the room. We can't talk about body neutral fitness without acknowledging the fact that fitness is used solely by many, probably most people as a way of altering their appearance. And while I don't promote intentional weight loss in any way, because I find that messaging very toxic, 
I also am a, a human woman who still feels the, you know, the pressure to to look a certain way. And I know that's very real. Like I said, I have a privileged body and that even when I am practicing intuitive eating and intuitive exercise, you know, I still fit within the the normal, you know, like I never have problems shopping for clothes. I might be more self-conscious some days than others, but there's always clothes made for me. There's always there's always space for me. So that in and of it, itself is privileged that I can talk about releasing the desire for intentional weight loss and still being societally accepted. For a lot of people, that's not true. And it's something that is hanging over their head all the time of trying to make themselves fit in, despite mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, everything we know about health at every size and that health looks different on all of us. And that's, mm-hmm. th- that's healthy. Yeah, that I mean, the first thing I'm thinking about is like, how do we address that if if wellness is really politics? And if the issues surrounding it are so much greater than like the simplicity of like the movement practices themselves, what do you see as possible solutions uh, to help service people and service their wellness in this more macro scale? I think that all fitness like trainers, you know, Pilates, whatever your modality, yoga teachers need to have some sort of crash course in the health at every size movement and the nuance of bio-individuality, if you want to call it that, the fact that different things work for different people and that while the, you know, the the Hollywood ideal right now might be one or a few different specific body types, they're not always healthy. And what while what might be healthy for one person might happen to fit within that. If you have to restrict and abuse exercise to look that way, that's not what's healthiest for you. Not not just on an emotional level, but physically, if you're depriving yourself of calories, it's, you know, the long-term effects on your your heart and, you know, just your longevity in in general are, are quite dangerous. But the diet industry thrives on, making people feel unworthy. So they'll keep coming back to that. And they call that health. And we shame people who don't fit that. And the, the so many good things have happened with the rise of the wellness industry. But one of the bad things is that we have assigned this like moral value to being well or being health because it, it, you know, it, all the ads tell us that it, it equates to being wealthy, it, it equates to having expensive things to being a good person. If, and if you don't have that, you're lazy and weak. And there's just so many underlying currents happening more, more than just the number on the scale. Yeah. And I mean, I, what I love about this conversation is it so clearly highlights that, you know, our health is really interwoven into every single part of our lives, you know, and, and for me personally, this is one of my favorite focal points is, you know, mental health, wellness, and psychology, like how those weave into our physical bodies and how the details of the emotions we feel and the thoughts we think are really in many ways the big guns <laughs> that are that are actually moving and manipulating our ability to even step into movement practices and then to even begin to squeeze out those benefits right it it really there's such a deep connection between the mind and the body and i've found that fitness and wellness in general tend to compartmentalize it. While I understand that sometimes grouping things that way makes more sense, uh, I see we're losing 
our ability to really tap into these resources when we compartmentalize too too rigidly or too readily. Yeah. And, you know, you hear a lot like get out of your head, get out of your head. And it's true as a society, we live so much in our head. And as I'm a, I have suffered from PTSD in the past and been entirely disassociated from my body. And I know, you know, in that context, when you say get out of your head, get into your body, I know what people are trying to say there. But if we're compartmentalizing, you know, there just, there is no compartmentalizing. And if you are, you are either you're, you're going to have to come back to it at some point and, and re-examine it. So yes, movement is a great way of getting out of your head, like the stressful head, the mind racing head. But if you keep your head integrated with your movement, you, you pace your breath to your movement, you explore the depth of the sensation. You think about what muscle am I activating? What does that do for my body? What will making this muscle stronger or more open, more mobile do for me? It's going to make you more body aware, which helps improve your sense of self-trust, which is crucial when you're, when we're talking about things like making food choices or deciding when to exercise. We do a lot of, there's a lot of shaming, you know, instinct in the diet industry where it, it makes it very scary to trust your body. And you're like, oh, well, if I want to rest, am I being lazy? Am I, is that the right thing to do anymore? I don't even know. So there's there's something to be said for emphasizing those things being done together. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I really want to get into this sensation question a little bit more because for me, it's also been such a keystone component that gets left out often. And like you said, it it has this clear connection between developing a sense of self-reliance, self-compassion, and then even more self-trust. So you do make sensation such a key point of all of your offerings. And I want to hear a little bit more about your perspective as to what those specific benefits are and a little bit more detail in the ways they translate into areas of our life and well-being. Yeah. I mean, I do think that that just instinctually comes from my history and identity as a dancer and that, you know, you're always thinking of like, what's that, that image that you can call to mind that's going to help you, you know, thicken the movement, you know, make the, the transitions better. Like how can I continuously improve and there's this nonstop quest for perfection. So it started mm-hmm. like that. Uh, and then it became, you know, a challenge to to get new to, to get new movers to feel what I wanted them to feel. So that's why, you know, I, I talk so much in class, I never shut up because I'm like, does this key work for you? What about this one, this one? Because I'm trying to <laughs> think about like you know, there's a, a thousand ways to skin a cat, I think is the expression you need. Yeah. To, sometimes you need to hear things so many different ways for it to click. And you're like, oh, wow, I, I feel that working now. And yeah. also, like I said, it's so easy for us to, to tune out, especially if we have an unhealthy relationship with exercise, we forced ourselves to get on the mat in the first place. We're just waiting for it to be over. We're totally somewhere else. You're not going to have any sort of sensation going on. And some people I'll be like, touch your body, feel, put your hand on your stomach. Do you feel as you exhale, your muscles contracting away from your hands? Like use what you have to, 
to make sure that things are are actually happening. Otherwise, your body's really smart at doing the least, and it's not gonna it's not gonna show up. Um, I, I think I just went off on tangent there. You, so what was your question? <laughs> no, I was just, I was actually gonna feed into that and then like go into a little bit more. So, yeah, yeah, it was a beautiful tangent because um, some that was like actually like my biggest pain point as a trainer was watching how we were taught to work with people and none of it was about sensation. It was all about external cueing, which I get like that. That's probably like the most easy structured way to do it. But I would watch so often people just moving and like brains completely elsewhere. And to me, if your brain isn't with you and your body, you're, you're actually not really moving. And there's this assumption, as long as my limbs are moving that, you know, that the muscles are engaging. Well, not the really. Science, <laughs> yeah, the science actually shows that's not true. Like where your attention is, is where things are being developed. Mm-hmm. So you can be moving in your body, but if you're not really focused on any part of that movement internally, then you're not necessarily getting anything out of it. Whereas to fully pull your focus into your body, I mean, that's where you really experience experience the richness of not just that moment, but then also those after effects too, both physical and mental as well. And Mm -hmm. this was, this was the piece I wanted to sort of extricate, not just sort of your uh, personal reasoning for focusing more on sensation, but like what you've observed, it helps create for people as a result. Well, not only is it you know, like you said, where your attention goes, the development is. So it helps people have this better sense of body awareness, which means your alignment's going to be better. You're less likely to get injured. You're you're actually growing strong in the places that you want to be growing strong, not using compensations, getting into some fascial movement patterns that are ultimately not the best for us. But you're on some sort of unconscious, subconscious, I'm not sure which one of those words is correct there, level, communicating to yourself that you can show up and do the hard stuff. So mm-hmm. I think there's this assumption when we say like fitness is good for your confidence and good for your body image. We think like, oh, well, if I'm working out, I'm losing weight and I'll have better body image if I lose weight because I look hotter or whatever it is you're looking for. But really what it is, is that fitness improves your sense of self-efficacy and it makes you feel powerful and strong. And, you know, we haven't been able to practice a lot of group fitness this world this year. But mm-hmm. when you're when you're in a studio breathing in sync and moving in sync with other people, like the, communicating to the mirror neurons in your brain that you're bigger than your body, that you belong. I had the chills just talking about it. I miss yeah. studios. <laughs> Uh, like it, it's it's a lot deeper than that, and I, you know, it sounds like maybe it, it's hard to convey that as well in like a Instagram ad or whatever. So I understand why these major big companies rely on the diet culture and the fear because they think that's the only way that they'll get people in the door. If I if I body shame you to the point where you're so obsessed with it, you're devoted that'll keep you coming back. Whereas if we're honest about like, yeah, exercise can change your body. That's obvious. We know that. But no one talks about how it can change your brain. And the way you feel after, I mean, hopefully a, a good class, you you feel amazing. It's possible to feel like shit if, you're, if your instructor is using all that body shaming cues. I've definitely felt like shit after class. But ideally, after a good class, you feel, you want to take up space. You feel 
energized, you feel strong, maybe you're tired and exhausted and like, you know, got the wind kicked out of you, but you feel like on top of the world. And that's, again, at the mind and the body, you can't take them away that that shows up in your posture, it shows up in the way that you interact with people. The de- I talk nonstop about the posture of like a depressed, anxious person versus the posture of someone like the most charismatic person that you know, mm-hmm. they're incredibly different because depression and anxiety are mental illnesses, but they're, they have physical symptoms. You feel 100%. that in your body. Yeah. So it's a nonstop feedback loop. I always think of movement as like the universal language. It allows us to communicate across different species. It allows us to communicate beyond like communicative verbal language, right? Because it's an expression of energy and it's such an immediate expression of what's happening in somebody's energy field. And that's the level that we communicate with first and foremost. And and this is the piece, like you're saying, that tends to get left out in a lot of fitness. It's like, if we move the body, it's enough. Well, actually, like, let's talk about the energy of what's going on. And so when you're asking people to move into sensation, you're actually asking them to be with the energy as it is changing in that moment. And, And that's actually... For me personally, where the the greatest level of excitement and euphoria and ecstasy comes, it's it's when I can so tune into the sensations, I almost lose what's happening around me, like other people, other stuff, even like the shape of my body, because I'm so in my body. And it's it's the closest way I can describe it is sort of like the same kind of level of ecstasy you feel if you've been studying med- meditation for a really long time and you finally had that release with oneness, it's so similar to that. And and I would say from my experience, and this could also be my dance background, being that I lived this language so deeply for so much of my life, that it's a faster way in than necessarily trying to cultivate like a meditation practice where we would typically go to try and address, you know, like stabilizing our mental state of being. Yeah. And I, I love Pilates yoga, like any sort of mindful movement for that. And dance, of course, dance is like the obvious one. That's why like ecstatic dance has existed for centuries in every culture. But for me, Pilates feels like such an accessible way in. And I hate for that reason, I hate the reputation of it being only for, you know, rich white women, because actually Pilates was created by a man. (laughs) Like it's, it's for all bodies. And it, it doesn't, it doesn't show up that way a lot in the media, which pisses me off because the whole reason I like it is because even to me, a former professional dancer, dance can sometimes feel very, like a very scary place. And a lot of people who don't have experience with dance, like ideally you have the right facilitator, you can do anything. Um, But people who don't have experience with dance are terrified of it. People are terrified of being in the front row of a workout class where we're all doing it together. Like people have a lot tied up, a lot of their fears tied up in their muscles, in their joints, like in our fascia. It lives there. Inherited trauma, past memories, all this stuff, it shows up. I've had a client before. I put my hands on her to to correct her and she's burst into tears because she hasn't been touched in, you know whatever, how long, mm. this is pre-pandemic. So yeah. I'm just trying, there's gonna be a lot of crying with hands-on correction, correction I'm sure in 2021. Oh yeah. But 
touch in and of itself is so healing. That's why things like Reiki and, and all of those things are, it, those things exist. But interacting and and letting your body be vulnerable, whether it's one-on-one with an instructor or in a group fitness class or, you know, watching my on-demand video alone in your your living room, but allowing yourself to move through not just the the length of your body, but shooting the energy out into the space around you. Like I said, it, it changes the way you carry yourself and ultimately the way that you feel. Well, like you said, it's an act of vulnerability. You know, this was something I... I also watched not be addressed in fitness. The fact that choosing to move your body is inherently like such a vulnerable act. And and especially when you step into a class or you're trying to speak to an instructor or you're hiring somebody for a personal one-on-one, like in many ways, it is the greatest act of vulnerability because we're saying, hey, I want help here. There's a part of me that doesn't feel at home or or competent enough to take care of this and I need assistance. Let me give my body to you to like have you guide me through this. Yeah. And, and I mean, no matter what your skill level is, no matter what your performance and fitness level actually are, like you always hit that at, at some point in various stages. And I think there's a real beauty and power in that moment. But unless we acknowledge it, we end up inherently mutilating it, right? Like the body shaming issue that's so pervasive within these industries and and all the other stuff that rides along with that. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I know I really want to get a little bit more into this uh, concept of body neutrality, which you talk about often. And I'd really appreciate if you could define it for the audience, because I know not everybody knows what it means. And then from the definition, just expand upon like where this ties into sort of finding solutions for some of these problems we're talking about here today. So I identify with body neutrality. Well, first I'll define it. Body, I'll define it. Body neutrality is a separation of your sense of worth from your body. So you're neutral about your body and you place the emphasis instead on, you know, your you as a person. And in a teaching, a teaching context, I see that as IQ functionally, anatomically, biomechanically, but I don't say like, have you ever been to a class where they're like, get your, what are they called? Bat wings in shape with this tricep move or that bra flab goes when we do that, like just horrible (laughs) stuff. That's like, you're supposed to be, you spent like sometimes $40 on a group fitness class in New York city. And they're just totally taking you out of it, distracting you from that me time. That's supposed to be like this moment of self-care. So I think that as like, okay, well, you know, we're going to strengthen your triceps so that your posterior chain is balanced with the, with the front line. And we're going to, you know, like just explaining the context of whatever the movement is and why we need that from a, a, I guess, appearance neutral perspective. It is, you know, still, you know, we want to get stronger. There are things that we're trying to do to support our body. I think of it like, you know, vitalizing is a word you would use, nourishing the body So there's that, but there's also, you know, like I kind of touched on earlier, the fact that so many, you know, Instagram influencers have kind of co-opted the body positivity movement when it was started by people in marginalized bodies to feel a sense of belonging. And of course, any, any person feeling better about their body is a good thing. But like I said, you know, 
even even the people who fit within the the cultural norm, we're all going to feel bad with, within this diet culture, you know, patriarchy <laughs> construct. We're all, we're going to feel bad in that uh, white supremacy, all that. It, it hurts everybody. We know that. But when we make it, when we center ourselves in that, it it it's icky. So body neutrality feels like a way for me to not center myself in that and to be more of a, you know, just someone who's able to offer my services in the movement context without making it about me. And I'm always learning and, and figuring that out because, you know, my, my recovery from my eating disorder is a, a personal victory in a big, big way, but it's not, it's, it's not like a, it's not the same as someone in a marginalized body being able to appreciate and love themselves because they've had more uphill, more of an uphill battle to climb. So it's important to me for all of what we just said about how pervasive diet culture is within the fitness industry, the wellness industry, because I help, I think it helps people reprioritize what they're showing up to the mat for. And that, of course, makes it a much more niche audience, because like I said, it's easier to it's easier to market to people who are when you're preying on their insecurities. That's like what a lot of ad campaigns are based on. So I think it takes a, a specific person to find me, find someone like you show up and, and stay engaged. I'm not the person you go to when you're like, I want to lose five pounds fast or shed for the wedding. I'm not that person. I am. I want to help people build a long-term healthy relationship with food and exercise so that they can feel good, feel strong, feel empowered, feel all those great things about exercise. And yeah, maybe like hold a plank for a minute if they want to, or carry their baby or breastfeed without debilitating back pain. So there's, there's functional goals we can reach that are objectively good for us, as well as practicing self-compassion and being flexible with food, not shaming ourselves or guilting ourselves when we don't do the, the fad diet or whatever it is. Yeah, that, that's such a beautiful sentiment, right? And, you know, the truth is, like, that's the real underlying goal for everybody. Because how many people have been through the, the hamster wheel of doing all the stuff to, you know, sort of beat their body into submission and restrict their food and like exercise a ton and get the visual aesthetic and still not feel good about it, still feel like, you have more to fix or or you're even less happy than you were before you know that like this psychology of of trying to fix ourselves from the outside in rather than addressing things from the inside out it really like leads to a lot of uh fractured self-awareness and so that's why i love about your message and your work in terms of like really going internal into this and like, yeah, we have these external things we want to address, but, um, but taking some of those layered tropes and assumptions that have been built in through certain language systems based off of fear, letting those be cleared out and instead like really bringing it back into the specifics of just all bodies, you know, like, let's talk about the, these muscles firing in sequence. Let's talk about these sensations that you can feel and the different ways that can show up so that you have an awareness of that. And then, you know, like, let, let's talk about strength in terms of 
the basic principles of strength, not in terms of what that looks like aesthetically. Yeah. And I do think it's, you know, there's a rumbling, there's a beginning, it's starting to shift. I hear, I feel more and more validated every day, you know, that this is the right thing, but it's still, it's scary to put yourself out there as a fitness professional and step away from, you know, the marketing that makes wellness, makes diets a billion dollar industry. It feels at first like, this is all just me and and, and do, I'm doing this for myself, which it's selfishly. Like here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the whole reason, like I said, the whole reason I started teaching this way was to hold myself accountable, to hold, to, to make this career path a safe place for me, a sustainable mm-hmm. place for me. Otherwise, I, I would have to go become an accountant or something. <laughs> Which wouldn't go well, would not go well. (laughs) (laughs) So I did, you know, I think a lot of healing professions, people are so invested in in it because of their own experience. So I I would be Mm -hmm. lying to say if I, if it was not for me, but it, it is validating to to hear more and more people are, are interested in that because there's always going to be someone who, who wants to, you know, lose weight or, or build a big booty or whatever the the cool thing is. And there's also always going to be someone who plays to that market. So there's a lid for every pot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But 100% of diets fail. Exercise abuse is unsustainable. If if an eating disorder doesn't kill you, it has the highest death rate of any mental illness. If it doesn't kill you, you will reach a point of inability to continue that path, whether it's disordered disordered eating or a full-blown diagnosed eating disorder. And mm-hmm. sadly, most of the women and probably most of the people, we just don't let men talk about their feelings as much, have some sort of disordered eating because it's so normalized. It's so, you know, just n- natural to talk about beating up, beating yourself up in the mirror or or restricting or, you know, people support each other through it because it's it's mm-hmm. just, it's just normal that, you know, it, it's harder, it's harder for people to get to this place of like, what's actually healthy. But everyone is going to need to get there at some point. So they maybe they get there when they're in their 20s, maybe they don't get there till they're 55. But I I hope that everyone gets there eventually. Yeah, well, I mean, I've also noticed a massive shift in this because what was it? It must have been Six years ago, I like signed up for my first, you know, fitness business accelerator course where like I hired a coach to help me and it was a massive financial investment. It was like a 12 week like juggernaut experience. (laughs) And within like four weeks, I just left because they were it was so pervasive in the whole fear mongering system. And it, it was all about, you know, showcasing the quick fixes, the magic fix quick quick fixes you could do about these physical. And I just was like, I was ready to leave everything I'd been doing, just like immersing myself in that. Cause I was like, if this is where people are making money and they are totally okay, setting up a system that, you know, that is geared towards if you succeed within it, you did a good job. If you failed within it, that was your fault. Like that was how this coaching program was structured. And I was like, how, I don't want my success or any money I earn or my reputation to be built on these things. Like, I don't want to have any part of this because there's too much of this going on. This is a problem. 
and and me trying to like change how I was talking about movement and still reach people but not do it through the fear-mongering strategy was was scary and it felt impossible and I I did also feel like I was talking to a wall most of the time and I was like I don't know if anybody hears me but like you're saying there's so much changing now and I think this uh, pandemic, as tough as it's been, I've seen a lot of benefits from it. And one of the major ones is it's really sort of restructuring people's relationship to movement, exercise and health. And I'm watching more and more people question sort of what used to be normal and in the face of not being able to access it and having to find alternatives. And in that discovering, well, oh, maybe there's a softer way. Maybe there's a gentler way. Maybe I don't have to operate from so much self-hatred and self-loathing to get, maybe I can actually be gentle and generous with myself instead. Hey, everyone. If you haven't yet heard, we have an Avolna On Demand app. It's a perfect tool designed to nourish both your mental and physical health for a strong body and steady mind. Inside, you'll gain access to all of our Evolna offerings, including movement microdoses, follow-along flows, and meditations to support your everyday needs. If you're interested, try us out for 30 days for just $1 by signing up to the link in our show notes. We'd love to have you join us. Now, let's get back to the episode. We're all experiencing this kind of just nonstop trauma for almost a year. And <laughs> and it's, it's, I don't think it's easy is not the right word, but it might feel more sustainable to, you know, make yourself wake up at, at 6am for the class that you actually hate going to, but you feel like you have to, or you'll feel like a failure for the rest of the day, blah, blah, blah. And the quarantine 15 and all those stupid Instagram things that I saw that was, you know, people will latch onto anything with that fear because they think it's, it's going to hook you in, but people have been forced to have that reckoning with their, their mind body relationship and just grasping at straws to find ways to deal with stress. And I think a lot of people's entrance into fitness, just like us, is through that disordered eating, I don't like my body, what can I do to change it way? And then it kind of sneaks up on them that, you know, wow, they like, they did five more pushups than they did the last time. That feels pretty good. That's, that's pretty neat. <laughs> and it's, it's that that keeps them showing up, even if, you know, they're not hitting any sort of appearance goal. Because, the science shows us we just refuse to acknowledge it as a culture, even if we all ate and exercised the same obsessively, restrict, restrictively, we're still going to look different no matter what, yeah. what what fad diet it is. So if yeah. we can instead just release that and be intuitive with those choices and pick and choose what actually makes the most sense for us as individuals, not only are we going to feel so much more amazing, but, you know, it physically but mentally as well because our we're not just living in that that spiral of of self-hatred and self-loathing and deprecation all the time yeah you know something i like to draw from like spiritual teachings and practices and and layer in 
to movement and wellness is this concept of individuality and the fact that we are all here to have a unique life experience. And it's kind of surprising when you like step back and recognize that and then see how often we're trying to do things the same way as everybody else. Yeah. Because like, like that's already inherently unfounded. I mean, our DNA is unique. Our body is unique. Our brain, our perception, everything is unique. And these things are also always in flux and changing. And that's the true beauty of, you know, being in a physical body in this lifetime is allowing yourself to have choices and to act on those choices and have different preferences and different rhythms from other people and to really experience the evolution of those. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I hope more people start, start finding us. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I feel the tides are turning and, uh, you know, like even to be able to have a discussion like this and have it land for people, you know, there, there was a time when that wasn't possible. So, um, I, I'm really hopeful that I'm also an eternal optimist. <laughs> no, I, I agree. I'm, I'm also hopeful. It feels, it feels like things are changing. It feels like, you know, at the very least people want their fitness to do both. You know, they, they want, and that's kind of like a, a hard, hard line to straddle. I don't think that you can fully commit to self-compassion and self-care when you're still have one fit in the diet culture door. But I think I sense that that's where a lot of us are right now. And it's like, you know, it's just it's a progression. Not to mention progress is like never linear. It always kind of bounces back and forth. As long as you get some pings this way, there there is a shift. Yeah. And honestly, like if I get like a text from my client being like, you know, I, I was staring at my reflection in the mirror today and I was I was like body checking and picking at myself. And then I was like, what would Helen say? And I stopped and I was like, okay, if that is if that is the max impact that I can make, that feels really fucking good. Sorry. I don't know if I can, if I yes, can curse. <laughs> it feels so good to, and, and that's the benefit of, you know, developing these close relationships with my one-on-one clients or my, you know, the clients that I was getting to see on a live basis before the pandemic is that there is not, not to beat a dead horse, but there's no separating the mind and body. Inevitably, we're going to share stuff when we're moving together that connects us to the person that we're moving with. And we become a sounding board, whether it's, you know, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not a, obviously a, a qualified mental health professional. I'm not a licensed therapist, but there is a vulnerability and a, a rawness that you experience when you're trusting your body with someone. A hundred percent. Well, you talk a lot about self-compassion. You brought it up here a few times. How do you see movement as a vehicle to exercise more self-compassion so in the in the sense that when we exercise intuitively meaning you know you you exercise when you have the energy to do so you exercise when you've been fueling yourself in a way that makes it appropriate for you to to do so and you listen to what your body needs in that in that moment so maybe it's just some foam rolling and some mobility drills maybe it's a full-on like ass kicking, can't breathe, want to die after like that. I, I, you know, as a, as an athlete, I love that. It's not for everybody and it's not for me every day, certainly. But that understanding of where the dial is on a specific day and a specific time during the day 
remembering to get up and move around and stretch instead of just being at your desk hunched over the computer for like 10 nonstop hours, which Mm -hmm. I, you know, of course I'm guilty of occasionally now and then, like we all get lost in, in those things, but you can always come back to paying attention. So Mm -hmm. that's compassion to me instead of viewing exercise as like a punishment or something that you have to do to make up for something that you ate or lack of activity or whatever it is. It's a way of what do I need in this, in this moment? And I have the capacity to actually give that to myself. Mm, Yeah. It's, you know, recognizing your needs and then meeting your needs, right? Mm -hmm. Without, without like needing to justify or explain it, or even worse, like brushing them to the side (laughs) so they like as though you can't actually address them yeah and it's I clients ask me about this all the time like how do you how do you exercise intuitively when you don't feel like working out because there's always going to be inevitably like working out is hard we don't always want to do hard things so Mm -hmm. it's not it's not never exercising in the same way that intuitive eating is not just like cheese fries all day, every day. It's, I mean, it can be cheese fries when you want them, but it's a way of understanding when you need to look at the bigger picture. So if you're having a trouble, having trouble with finding motivation, you're not feeling up to it, but you know that you are feeling lethargic and you know that you need an endorphin boost, you know that you're feeling down. What type of movement or, or not movement, maybe it's a bubble bath. What, yeah. what is going to give that to me and feeling, not feeling shame or guilt or any of that stuff when you make that choice based on, on how you're feeling. And yeah, sometimes exercise sucks. Sometimes it's hard that no one, no one likes the painful part of it. We like how we yeah. feel conquering the painful part of it. Mm. Yeah. That's such an important distinction. So we could easily spend another hour on it. <laughs> and I really would love to, but I think we'll have to defer to another interview sometime. Would love so that. As, as we wrap things up here, I always like to allow our guests the opportunity to share any last words of wisdom before we part ways. Oh, last words of wisdom. That's like when people are like, what's your favorite food? And you're like, I have uh. no idea. <laughs> uh, um, last words of wisdom, I think is just to to pay attention to to how you feel before, during, and after movement, because that's going to kind of reprogram your brain to having a more positive relationship with it. If you force yourself to exercise in a way that you hate when you're not up for it, mm. inevitably you're going to resent and dread it. And when you think exercise, your brain goes, no, that's the worst. But if you build on positive experiences, you know, try to move away from that negativity bias and strengthen the pathways in your brain that think of exercise as a good experience, if not, like I said, not always fun, not always Mm -hmm. easy, but something that you feel good doing, at least Mm -hmm. after you're going to look for, you're actually going to look forward to it in a way that the diet culture marketing has nothing on because they will lose you mm. after a while. When you when you hate something, you will not do it. And exercise, mm-hmm. it's good for you. We need it. We need to move our bodies. So if we can have a good relationship with it, what, why would we not want a good relationship with it? Yeah. I mean, it's like basically creating your own positive feedback loop mm. with it. Exactly. As much as you can, every opportunity you can. Yes. 
Oh my, that's wonderful. Oh, I just got chills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could definitely, definitely talk for like days about this. So, <laughs> oh yeah, well, we'll have to have you on again, but thank you so much for being so generous with your time, with your experience, with your insights, Helen. This was such a beautiful conversation here today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in with us today. You can find contact information and all references made during the show in the show notes. If you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and spread the love by sharing with family and friends. If you want to learn more or would like additional support in your movement relationship, head to our website at evolna.com. Be gentle, be generous, and be good to yourself. And have a beautiful day.